Okay, good evening everyone. Welcome back. This is our third installment of our uh, Modern Jewish History series. Uh, tonight we'll be covering the Dreyfus Affair. Uh, I have to just say as we, as we begin, uh, two comments. One is, out of all, you know, I'm, I, I happen to have a personal love of Jewish history. I just find it fascinating. Um, researching this particular topic has been one of the biggest rabbit holes that I have found myself uh, falling into. It is such a fascinating story. There are so many different aspects, ramifications, perspectives on this particular episode in not just Jewish history, in world history, particularly in French history. Um, it's just a fascinating story. We're gonna, we'll skim the top of it. There's only so much we can do in the little time that we have tonight. Uh, and we'll try to stay focused on the parts that are uh, relevant to us. I have one um, confession to make uh, of a particular a particular nervousness um, that I have in this particular class, which is many of the player, all of the players really are French, and the publications were written in French. The names of the uh, episodes all take place, and I'm speaking to a a, a group of uh, if not fluent but uh, French speakers. And I'm the only one who was going to mispronounce everything. So when I was in the States, it was like, no problem. Nobody, nobody knew any more than I did. Um, so uh, we'll, have, we'll have to deal with this as we go through. And uh, you'll help me out uh, as, uh, as necessary. Uh, let us begin. As I mentioned, this story is a massive world history story, not just a Jewish history story. And when you think about major events, history is, of course, really just comprised of people and things that they did. Uh, accomplishments and events that took place uh, through people. Some people, as they go through major historical moments, they can sense the the historical magnitude uh, of what it is that they're going through. And you could see in their writings that they understood what was happening and the significance of the time that they were living in. Just as examples, I put in the notes a few examples. You know, Abraham Lincoln, as he's fighting to abolish slavery, you can read in his words how he saw this was a momentous occasion, not just for the United States of America, but for mankind. And uh, Churchill, the quotes as he goes to war, the finest hour in British history. People will look back, he says, for hundreds of years at us, us right now. As they enter into these moments of Ben-Gurion reading the Declaration of Independence as, uh, as we relate the, the birth of the modern state of Israel, there are moments in time where the players involved understand the significance. And then there are moments which become massive historical uh, landmarks, but the player or players involved are thrust into it without their knowledge, without their understanding, uh, and, and they really never appreciate ever who they are or the role that they play in the larger historical context. Our story tonight, the Dreyfus Affair, Alfred Dreyfus is the polar opposite of the Lincoln-Churchill-Ben-Gurion examples. He's the most unassuming, unwilling participant who never, till his dying day, understood at all the role that he plays, not just in Jewish history, but in French history and in uh, world history. This story of the Dreyfus Affair is at the same time has nothing to do with the Jews, and it has everything to do with the Jews. It, it's both simultaneously and really needs to be understood um, in, that, uh, in that context. What it was, um, going back to the notes for a second, sorry, I know you're trying to keep up with me going back and forth, but I just wanted to read that little paragraph back on the notes. Um, what it was, 
um, actually is a is a political scandal that completely divided the Fr- the Third French Republic um, for twelve years from eighteen ninety four until nineteen o six. Twelve years of this uh, scandal um, as the affair, as it became to symbolize just all of modern injustice in the Francophone world, and it remains one of the most notable examples of a complex mis carriage of justice combined with anti-Semitism and the roles that both the government, representing in this case the army, uh, press, public uh, opinion, all come into play on in this particular uh, issue. And it, it captures the world's attention. Um, and it's going to rip apart French society. You know, we live here in, in Canada, but we've uh, been paying careful attention, obviously, to what's going on in the States. And oh, this last election, as it has split the country in, in half, and it's, it's a topic that you, you can't address without passionate feelings on all sides of the equation. You're, you're not neutral. Either you're, in our, in our recent example, you're a pro-Trump or an anti-Trump. That's just the way that it was in the States. And it, the, just using that as an example, the French Republic was literally split passionate sides on all sides of whether or not uh, you were in favor of Dreyfus or anti-Dreyfus. But again, he was just a example. It really wasn't at all about Dreyfus as much as it was about the issues at hand, which God willing, we will discuss uh, momentarily tonight. The simple understanding, let's just start with what are we talking about? Um, what we're talking about is the trial and conviction of a Jewish officer named Alfred Dreyfus who was uh, convicted of treason, um, who was, that he was spying uh, against the French army, which he was an officer in, for the German army, which led to the French defeat in the uh, German uh, the Prussian War of 1870, which had happened 14 years years prior, and that conviction, and whether or not it was a valid conviction or an invalid conviction, is really what is going to completely destroy and split the French Republic. Let's go back to our uh, notes for uh, for a moment. Um, now, it happens to be that there's a Jew at the center of this, uh, of this major controversy, and there are many lenses through which one really needs to, to understand this episode, view it. Um, it's a fascinating political drama uh, on its own, and it has massive ramifications and impact on the French Republic, both in terms of the uh, forces that it revealed and in regards to the forces that it's uh, created. And I say that in the sense of, as opposed to the last two sessions that we had, we were discussing the Musser movement, we were discussing the Chove Veitzion. Those are Jewish issues. You won't find any reference in a regular history book, anything about either of those two concepts. The Musser movement is irrelevant to the world at large, that there was a group of Jews working on this particular character development. The idea that there was a Chove Veitzion, not going to make it into the history book. So we, when we talk about it, we talk about it from a Jewish perspective, and there really isn't any other perspective with which uh, to, to agree, uh, to, uh, to address. This issue doesn't need to be addressed from a Jewish history perspective at all, and you can find books, libraries, films, documentaries addressing this issue strictly from a French government, French Republic perspective. So I'm only stating that to acknowledge 
we're going to be addressing it more from how it impacts. The lens that we're going to be using is how it impacts Jewish history. But I don't want in any way to pretend that we're going to be covering the, the element of what the story is um, through that, just that that's what we're focusing on. Just as, a, a, you know, when we lived in the States, there was a wonderful publication called The Week. It was a weekly magazine that would come out. We've not been able to get it here. The Week was just a brilliant publication in which they, they went through all the news stories of the week and they did it in three sections. And they would say, this is what happened. And they would tell you just facts. Such and such an event took place. And uh, that's what it is, a short summary. And then they would say, this is how the Republic, the uh, Democrat, Democrat uh, or liberal news agencies reported it and commented on it. This is how the conservative or Republican news agencies reported it and commented on it. And now you have both sides. You got the just cut and dry facts, and then you have their take, and then you have their take. And it was an awesome read to get like, oh, now I understand what's going on. And you could pick and choose. You see exactly who everyone's spin and everyone's interpretation, but you got it as it is. So I'm stating it up front very clearly. I'm, I'm, we're going to angle it in from the Jewish perspective on this story, even though there were many, many other perspectives on this story besides for uh, the one that we'll be focusing on tonight. So let's, uh, let's jump in uh, and get started. Uh, I, I, there is a link here in your notes. Um, if you are interested, uh, Barbara Tuckman, I'm going to quote uh, several times tonight, uh, published in 1966, a book called The Proud Tower. It was a work on uh, pre-World War I Europe, focusing on, let's say, from about 1890 to 1914, what were all the factors that led to the First World War. And she has a chapter, about a 40-50 page chapter, called Give Me Combat, which is specifically on France and the Dreyfus Affair as the role that it played leading into World War I. And it's been uh, published online, so you can download it for free. It's a fascinating read. Um, if you want to just skim through it, she writes beautifully, uh, very insightfully, um, and gives a real clear insight as to what the atmosphere was like in France at the time, specifically from an anti-Semitic perspective as well. But she's not writing from a Jewish perspective. She's simply writing a history of, of Europe leading into World War I, but it, it's clearly there. I highly recommend, if, you're, if this story is of interest to you, um, it is a great read uh, to really understand uh, that what's going on. From our perspectives, we need to understand the shift from Western European anti-Semitism and Eastern European anti-Semitism. We've been dealing primarily with Eastern European anti-Semitism. The Jews of uh, Lithuania and Russia all that they were dealing with. And that was a far different type of anti-Semitism. The Jew in Russia was fundamentally different in every way than his non-Jewish neighbor. He was different in his religion. He was different in his dress, his fur hat, and his long black coat, his beard, his culture, his language that he spoke Yiddish, what they study, whether it was Gemara or whether or not it was secular studies, the way they earned a living. There was literally almost nothing that compared the two. They were in different worlds. 
and the Christian anti-Semitism was open and well-defined. It was not hidden. Everybody wore it on their sleeves. The Jew knew what to expect. The Christian was part of his world that he hated the Jew, and they were going to have their clashes. Sometimes it was a little bit less. Sometimes it was a little bit more. There was a, a calendar cycle that everybody knew. Stay off the streets. Nittelnacht. There's a whole concept that was created. You're, on Christmas Eve, no Jew should be out on the street. It just wasn't a safe place to be. There were certain uh, Easter sites, whatever it was, the Jews knew, stay away, lay low, and uh, stay out of harm's way. But a Jew who understood his enemy and understood and took it for granted, this is my enemy and this is the life that I live in, learned as best as possible to be able to deal with that aspect of life. And that was really um, both in Eastern and Western Europe for hundreds of years during the Middle Ages and beyond. That was the, the reality of Jewish life. And, and they knew how to expect uh, Christian anti-Semitism, what it meant and what it would look like. That doesn't mean it wasn't bloody. We all have, we know the history. We don't need to go through that tonight. But we knew what it was. In the emancipated and enlightened world of Western Europe, France, Germany, um, of the 1800s, with the Enlightenment movement sweeping through, a fundamental shift takes place in which the Jew is now, for the first time, granted government protected protection as a equal citizen before the law, something which had really not been part of the Jew's experience up until that point. He's now given equal rights. He can go to the universities. He can uh, apply for the same type of jobs, owning land. Everything is opened up to this Jew. And that creates a very new phenomena, which is a socially rising, assimilated Jew. You, you really couldn't be an assimilated Jew in the old Middle Age or Eastern Europe. So either you left Judaism, um, but then you didn't identify as a Jew. You just left um, and you either converted or, or whatever you did. But to identify as a Jew and assimilate into the secular society around, that really becomes a thing in mass with the emancipation. We're very familiar with that because... Most people would identify, even if we wouldn't identify as assimilated Jews, we would say like, we sort of look and dress and talk the part just like our uh, North American neighbors in the same way. That became a novelty in enlightened Western uh, Europe. And now you had the idea of a Jew who actually dressed the same as his non-Jewish neighbor. He spoke the same language, and he might have even spoken it more perfectly than his non-Jewish neighbor, no longer speaking Yiddish, lived in the same neighborhoods, attended the same universities, competed for the same jobs, and even the religions began to merge because, as we know, we, had, we haven't spent much time about this, but the reform movement, particularly in Germany, instituted several of the same practices that they picked up from their Christian neighbors. Uh, the, pre the rabbis began to dress like priests. They even moved, they moved the organ in. A lot of the reform congregations even moved uh, Shabbos to Sunday services so that there was a melding in almost every single way. And the historical irony, which we're already familiar with, is that the more the Jew assimilated, it, despite the fact that he became more and more similar to his non-Jewish neighbor, but the more hated that he actually became. And this hatred was far more difficult to identify in the old Christian world and the world that still existed in Eastern Europe. It was easy. You're the Jew. You're different. You look different. You act different. You talk different. And there's an animosity that was 
not necessarily spoken, but was understood by both parties. You're the enemy for whatever reason, and that's how things go. And now in Western Europe, we have this new phenomenon that the world has not yet adjusted to of the Jew who looks, talks, dresses, and works and lives in the same neighborhood. Doesn't look any different, but identifies as a Jew. And that's harder. That is harder to identify, and it becomes far more insidious, far more dangerous. It's going, of course, to culminate in the Holocaust, um, which, which was something that the old Christian world might not have ever even imagined possible, but it will not only become possible, it becomes, as we are very familiar with, unfortunately, the reality of this, and, and this is the beginning of this stage. It's new in the world, this idea of the race being against the race of the Jew and not just the religion of the Jew. The religion of the Jew had been, along, been around for a long time. It was easy to define. And now we have to deal with race. Rothschild, the Baron Rothschild, not the one who we spoke about, the Baron Rothschild um, in England, uh, who would have otherwise had a seat in Parliament, never took his seat in Parliament because he would have been required to take a Christian oath, which he refused to do. But his statement, which I have for you in the notes, is... It's not my religion that they're opposed to. It's the particular nature of my nose that they're opposed to. And it was, he's touching on this idea that it's no longer just about religion. We, we've seen this morph into a whole new idea against anti-Israel. It's, it's the same idea, just new manifestations of how to shift because it's no longer politically correct. The world that we live in just to hate a race, but it's okay if you take it out on all the atrocities that they claim the state of Israel is doing. But it's, it's all the same new manifestations of, uh, of the same concept. This idea, this idea, this type of anti-Semitism, if you're interested, uh, if you haven't read Constantine Sword, a very fascinating book who traces this new anti-Semitism, and it's all rooted in Christian theology. It, just, it, it explodes onto the scene in this new form, but it's a very old idea, and he traces it all the way to the Holocaust. It's an interesting read, um, if you're interested. Um, uh, the the, the well-known um, philosopher, uh, Nietzsche, so he, he, in 1883, this is in this time period, in the late 1800s, develops his idea of what he called the Ubermensch, uh, the Ubermensch, which is sometimes defined as a superman or superior man, basically is the idea that the only thing that matters is life here on earth. And it was an entire philosophy debunking the concept of another afterlife, which is obviously the foundation of everything we believe in, which the Christians adopted as well. That allows the idea in an afterlife, allows for the idea uh, against Darwinism. Darwinism, which is all about the survival of the fittest, what we, what the Torah really gave as a gift to the world is the idea of help the orphan, the widow, the stranger. Help the poor, he who can't help themselves. You, us human beings, as Jews, are responsible for helping. And it's not about the strong, it's not the strongest which survive, it's the morally strongest which survive. And we have introduced, the Torah introduces that concept to the world, and the forces against that are represented by this idea. Darwin first published his, his theory in 1859. This is, again, you know, Nietzsche's only uh, introducing this tw some 20 years later. And this is the foundation that Hitler himself is going to base himself upon, that there is a, 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 a superior race 
And it's all about this world, not about the next world, not about turning another cheek, not about loving your neighbor like yourself. Everything is about survival now, which is a throwback to the old Spartan days. But that was the approach. That's the anti-religious approach. So much so that they really believed that Christianity was its was the was the uh, the virus, so to speak, that the Jews gave to the world when the Jews couldn't spread their own world. Word they created Christianity to uh, to to get these ideas into society, but it was all anti that idea. And this is part of the environment that's existing as now this Jew has entered into society, looks the same, uh, is in the universities, working the same jobs, uh, and believes in this higher moral idea that's going against the grain of a survival of the fittest approach of a superior race, of which the Jew is obviously not going to be part of that equation of what's going to make the superior race. So if you want, again, part of this rabbit hole of this whole story is the development of the actual superhero character, Superman, um, and how that was created. Um, and it was based off of first this ubermensch idea, and then as a antithesis to it, it's an interesting study if you want to just look into uh, the origins of Superman. It seems to have been created by two Jews just based on their names, which of course fits uh, everything else that we're talking about, how things go. Let's go, uh, let's move forward. Um, now, the question is, the question that needs to be addressed is, uh, as we're going to really learn about the, the tremendous uh, anti-Semitism that's taking place in France and the world really at this time, are, what are the causes for that? Where does it come about as this new Jew has entered into society and discovers that he's not welcomed in? So there are a number of ideas uh, that I just want to share, some, uh, most from uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine, his thoughts uh, on, on this matter, as far as just understanding a little bit of, of where that comes from and the, and the background of, of the time that we're working on. Number one, it's interesting to know, just to start with, the Gemara says a fascinating thing. The Gemara says, Halachahi Esav Sone Es Yaakov. It's like a halach, it's a law that Esav will always hate Yaakov. Starting from the time that Yaakov steals his, his brachos, as we read about a few weeks ago in Shul, and Esav hates him there, and it's just going to continue. Now, the Gemara is saying this 2,000 years ago, uh, unaware of what was going to come with the Crusades and the Spanish Inquisition and, and uh, the Chilmeniki uh, uprising and the Holocaust, unaware of any of that, just saying, this is the way it's going to be until the end of days. There's going to be, Esav is going to hate Yaakov. Don't try to figure it out. Don't try to understand. Just recognize that the forces were put into play and it, it's going to continue that way. So it's, it's worth noting just that idea that the sages understood that that's the way that it was going to be. Nonetheless, as we try to understand that there are actually things that we could try to wrap our minds around as to why these fans, flames are always seem to be uh, fanned in various ways. One idea is uh, the, there was the end of the old order of Europe. Whenever there's major change, a shift in the nature of society, um, that always creates problems. Um, when you end the world, the, the old order, for example, in Europe, these, this time from the Enlightenment and on, these last hundred years, um, the shift in the nature of monarchy, the rise of colonial states, capitalism, empires, there are new forces in the world, labor, socialists, um, and transition is intrinsically a difficult time. It's chaos during this hundred year all over Europe with revolutions, assassinations, uh, radicals on the right, radicals on the left. And when there's periods of transition, when the given order breaks down, 
um, people who were invested in that order, who had their life invested both socially, monetarily, whatever the case may be, and then order is broken and everything falls apart, so they look for an understanding as to, well, what happened to my life? I was socially elite. I was financially elite, and then everything fell apart. The ruling class be- loses that status, which is what revolutions often do. Now, we look back historically at those movements, and we see it was a historical movement. There were certain forces in, in play at the time, whichever those forces may be. Uh, we're living through, uh, over the last couple of months, this entire, this a similar force in the U.S., trying to raise uh, social awareness, um, uh, Black Lives Matter, all of these things and the impact that it has. So we're living through it. How is it going to end? Who knows? Maybe 50 years from now, they'll look back on it and it'll be a blip. Maybe it'll be a major impact. I don't know. But that's the point. When you look back over something, sometimes you see there was a movement in the air. There was a a force of action, the Arab Spring of a couple of years ago. But when you're living through it, you can't see that there was a a force necessary. All you see is that my life used to be like this and now it's been ruined. I used to be in power and I lost my power. I used to be uh, like this and something else. Well, someone has to be to blame for the fact that the order of my life as I knew it has been destroyed. And when you're looking for something or someone to place the blame or the explanation on what happened, you don't have the historical perspective. So uh, the Jew often ends up being that we've often ended up in the midst of the revolutions and all of those movements. One of those issues, we're a convenient scapegoat because we're the eternal foreigner. that We just are. And if there's ever a group looking to place blame, that is often going to be the place that they will go. A second, really a third reason, is the quick emergence of the Jew from the ghetto. From the time of the emancipation, the Enlightenment movement, it's really 60, 70 years and the Jews become prominent leaders. We have such a concept of the Baron Rothschild dynasty. It's our entire family of uber-wealthy bankers. And they, Jews as a whole, succeeded. We're looking at the modern state of Israel and literally in the same way. We're looking at Jews in America in the same way. How long are the Jews here in America? We're, we're less than 100 years in major numbers. And yet, in, in a very short period of time, uh, we have the, the fact that we're as prominent, represented disproportionately in the Senate, in the states, in, the, in government, in industry, in Hollywood, in finance, the numbers of our representation, they, it's not just that it doesn't fit our numbers, it's that we haven't been here long enough to have been able to have done that, but we do, and we did it before as well. That, that is often a, a target, the fact that the newcomer comes in, and in a very short time, with our ambition and our talent and our divine blessings that we have, rising to the top, every person you step on along the way, when you started below in the ghetto, and all of a sudden you're the boss, that engenders a great uh, discontent, shall we say. 
lastly, um, there's another issue which took place in France, which unfortunately has continued to follow us, is that there are individual Jews who often act as if they don't have a responsibility to the Jewish people as a whole. Meaning, we're all identified as Jews, and when a Jew does something, it's not simply an individual, it becomes the Jews, even though it was only an individual. And therefore, we all have the responsibility to always be acting as if we represent the entire Jewish people. There were two episodes which took place in France leading up to our story of the Dreyfus Affair, which uh, cost billions of dollars um, and, and um, millions of dollars probably in those, in those days and were both attributed to uh, billions of francs and uh, attributed to the Jews. One is the Vatican had set up an investment bank in France. Now the Vatican had a terrible track record of setting up banks, but they set one up in uh, France and it became the place that the French Catholics, the poor, everybody, or the, the, the Vatican set up the bank, so it was going to be a uh, safe investment. What took place, and without going into the details, um, through a series of legally clever manipulations, uh, the Rothschild uh, banking dynasty, in effect, put the entire bank into bankruptcy and bought it all out at pennies on the dollars. Legal, it seems to have been. Shrewd, for sure. The end result was the, the locals lost all their money. And it went into the hands of the Rothschild Empire. And uh, I don't think it needs to be highlighted that that did not make them a lot of friends. Um, Basically confirmed the image of uh, what the Jews are. There was a second event, uh, which the, the, the French were interested in the Panama Canal even before the U.S. was, and they sank literally um, tens of millions of dollars into it. The bonds were being held by Jewish bankers, and when that entire project collapsed, which was not really the fault of the Jews, it was an ill-fated project to begin with, but at the end of the day, it was the Jews who had been holding all of the bonds, and when all that money was lost, it looked, it had the curb appeal appearance that it was once again the Jewish bankers who were at fault and who were profiting from the, uh, the loss of the French people. Those are two examples of several that painted the Jew into the picture, the anti-Semitic picture of money-grubbing, not trustworthy people. This led to a, a, the creation of something called the syndicate. Um, you'll, some of you, as we describe this, will be familiar with certain books, modern-day books, um, uh, by an author by the name of Brown, not to mention any particular names that like play off of this idea that the, the, the French right wing literally created a character of Jews, a group called the syndicate. And this syndicate ruled the world. They made all the decisions and they later, this morphed into what we're familiar with of the protocols of the elders of Zion, which continues to exist no matter what anybody, if anybody really understood the Jewish community, they would understand that it's absolutely impossible Possible to imagine that any group of Jews can control anything, can't even get elections in our own home country. Um, how many are we going to about to have four in a year? But um, but this idea was perpetuated and it was created during this time of the syndicate. And whenever there was a problem, it was like the syndicate is behind it, and it just became a thing of the Jews are running the world. Now again, that idea would have been impossible in Eastern Europe. The Jew in the shtetl, that somebody would come and claim that there are a group of fur-hatted, long-coated rabbis sitting in a dinky 
run-down base medrash somewhere controlling the world, never going to work. But the assimilated Jew, the banker, the doctor, the lawyer, the wealthy, rising to the top, stepping on everybody else along the way, became a concept that allows the protocols of the elders of Zion to exist. Yes, indeed, they're running everything. And that's an argument that we have seen has taken hold. <laughs> Truth doesn't have to be behind something that takes hold. Lies spread uh, f- far faster than truth does. And this idea found a willing audience in this existence of the new emancipated Jew um, and gives us the background now for our uh, Dreyfus affair. Let's take a look at a fascinating story. We're all familiar on some level with uh, the details of it, but let's just go through as, uh, as best we can as it impacts uh, uh, our uh, story of getting ready for the paving the path, so to speak, laying the groundwork for the birth of the modern state of Israel, which is what this entire course is really all about. In 1870, as I mentioned, France suffered an overwhelming and humiliating defeat to the Germans in the Franco-Prussian War of 1870. It was literally a six-month war when it was over, which in those days was a very quick, lightning-fast war. Uh, Two entire French armies surrendered in mass. Napoleon III was dethroned. It was the greatest debacle to a very proud French army that they were defeated in such a humiliating way. And as things, whenever these kinds of events happen to any particular country, so there's a period of shock, recovery, and then assessment. What in the world happened? So in the decade following 1870's defeat, the French... Uh, elite and uh, academia began to inquire, look into what went wrong. And as they began to look into it, it began to become very clear that there was a spy from within the French ranks who was feeding the German army information about French plans, where they would be, how they would get there. There was no other way to explain this defeat, and they were correct. There had been a spy. That spy was actually named Ferdinand Walson uh, Esterhazy, who was in the French army, and he was actually Hungarian-born, and he was a professional mercenary. He was hired, as uh, has always existed, where you could uh, soldiers would be professional soldiers, and they would hire themselves out to different armies. He was hired by the French, and was being secretly paid by the Germans. And he was responsible, uh, as we've discovered later in history, he was responsible for providing the Germans all of the key uh, war plans. And now as time went on, and it became clear that there had been a spy, and they were zeroing in on him, so he needed to save himself. So what he does is he basically finds who is the most likely scapegoat that he can pin this on, as it became clear somebody was feeding information, um, and he finds Alfred, Alfred Dreyfus. Alfred Dreyfus is a 36-year-old, nondescript uh, military, if you could go back to the uh, the notes, uh, military... Uh, uh, military professional. He's in artillery. He is not in a major position of uh, power. He is defined as cold, uh, no friends, and by no coincidence, he's also the only Jewish um, officer in the general staff of the French army. I have a quote here for you that I just want to share um, that I took from uh, Tuchman, as I mentioned her book, Barbara Tuchman, earlier. Um, Dreyfus, besides for fitting the requirements, meaning that somebody needed to be uh, uh, in the general staff, he was a Jew, which is the eternal alien, a natural suspect to absorb the stain of treason. Now remember, this is a major 
accusation that France is trying to levy on somebody, that they're a traitor, that somebody within our ranks was feeding information to the outside. Uh, to be a traitor in any country is a major, major claim. But certainly in France in that time, that was the highest level of tra- You can't imagine that. So who can absorb that? Now, in truth, of course, it was a Hungarian-born mercenary soldier. But they didn't realize that. So the Jew was the most likely target to stamp as the traitor. As a person, she writes, he was not liked by his brother officers. He was stiff. He was silent. He was cold and almost unnaturally correct. He was without friends, opinions, or visible feelings. And his officiousness on duty had already attracted unfavorable attention. So he was not liked by his officers. He had no personality traits and anybody found warm. And these characteristics appeared sinister as soon as he came under suspicion. This is important. Meaning, naturally, just say, it's not, whatever, he's a weirdo. But then when somebody's trying to weed out the spy... All of a sudden, those traits arouse suspicion. His appearance, the reverse of flamboyant, seemed the perfect cover for a spy of medium height and weight, medium brown hair, medium age. He was like the perfect, nondescript nobody. 36, he had a toneless voice, unremarkable features distinguished only by his rimless uh, uh, pinstas that he wore, which were the uh, fashionable form of eyeglasses in his milieu. His guilt was immediately presumed. Now, again, we have here a story in Jewish history in which the Jew, uh, excellent, the Jew is pointed out. Now, as a Jew, by the way, uh, he was barely Jewish, um, non-observant in, in all of France, uh, outside of Alsace. They had literally, there were 500 observant families in this time in all of France. He was an assimilated Jewish community, and he was assimilated. He was not observant. He was not familiar. So he, it, it, but he was a Jew. And he was identified as a Jew. And this, um, so when he was identified, uh, when he is identified as the potential uh, uh, mole amongst the the French uh, military, um, what, uh, uh, just go back to the uh, uh, speech for a second. So what, um, (coughs) excuse me. So what Esther Hazy does is he leaks this information. There was a notorious anti-Semitic uh, newspaper. It was founded by uh, Edward Drummond. Um, he had actually written a book in 1886, this uh, Drummond, uh, that uh, was published ran into 121 editions within its year, an anti-Semitic book of its first publication, and became the most widely read book in all of France. And several years later, six years later, in 1892, he founded a very successful anti-Semitic daily uh, newspaper that I would pronounce, but I'm going to get it wrong, so I'm going to leave it alone. Um, but this be, he becomes, this newspaper is the center of the anti-Semitic sentiment in France. So um, what he does, uh, Esther Hazy, is uh, he leaks to this newspaper that Dreyfus is the guy um, in an anonymous report sent into the newspaper. So the newspaper was only so happy to pick up this anonymous tip and run with it. And like all good lies, word begins to spread that they found the spy. It's this Jew, of course. Who else would it be? And uh, things begin from there. Now, there is a second uh, uh, player 
a major player in the story, a, a lieutenant colonel by the name of Hubert Joseph Henry. Um, now, Henry worked in the Counter Espionage Bureau, and his, his job, his life was uh, espionage, spying, counter uh, espionage. He was a professional forger. That's what he did, that's what he worked with. And he gets involved in providing the missing information. They, they didn't really have a lot on Dreyfus. Um, and he begins to forge uh, papers and documents to incriminate him. Now, I, I want to share another quote by uh, Barbara Tuckman. I think it's an important quote. She writes as follows. It's in the box here. This was not a deliberate plot to frame an innocent man. And I'll explain what she means in a moment. It was the outcome of a reasonable suspicion acted on by dislike, some circumstantial evidence, and instinctive prejudice. Meaning, we'll read that again in a second. Meaning, Esther Hazy frames him. He drops the word that says it was Dreyfus. Now Dreyfus's name is out there in the papers. Once his name was out there, it is not believed that this second person, this Henry, was in on the entire plot that he was made up out of thin air. There was loose circumstantial evidence that he was it. There was the dislike that people had for him. And then you had the instinctive prejudice of, of course it was the Jew. Convinced Henry was that it in fact was Dreyfus, led him to justify all of the forgeries because we know it's him Okay, we're missing a little bit of evidence. So for the honor of the Republic to be able to pull out this guy who we know that it is, okay, so we need to forge a little bit. So we have the complicated mix of Esther Hazy actually the spy claiming it was somebody else, which was a purposeful framing of an innocent man. And then you have army officials picking it up and running with it and then actively making up things to bolster the argument that they believed was true, not because of evidence, but that they believed was true because of their instinctive prejudice, dislike, and a little bit of circumstantial evidence. All of us have experienced before where we take a little bit of circumstantial evidence and because of our own personal prejudices, make up the rest of the story. We do that, unfortunately, all of the time. This is being done on a large scale with a person's life at stake, but it's in essence taking that. So you have those two factors at play. There are many other players. It's much larger than that. Uh, I want to at least state that. I'm stating the obvious that uh, just for the sake of our purposes, just for tonight, to try to keep it uh, simple. As word begins to spread in the anti-Semitic paper, and you have a country smarting for revenge against the Germans, looking to defend their honor from their humiliating defeat, by 1894, when this accusation comes out, and then eventually comes to the attention of the general, um, uh, Auguste Mercier, the minister of war, and everything hinges upon a shredded document that they found in one of the army government buildings in a wastebasket. Somebody discovers a note that had been shredded, that a handwritten note that seemed to imply that the writer of the note had provided information to whoever the intended recipient of the note was. Meaning this seemed to have been the source of the, whoever wrote this note had given or conveyed information. That's what it seemed like from the note, and it actually might have been true. The only question was, who wrote the note? 
And this is where all of the evidence hinged on whether or not it was indeed Dreyfus who was the author of this note. They brought in experts on handwriting and penmanship, and despite the fact that it wasn't exactly perfect, uh, they wanted to claim that he was indeed the person behind it. Any case, Mercier doesn't buy it. He believes that this is uh, all concocted. It's a weak argument. And besides, he said, this guy, Dreyfus, it can't be him. He's just not high up enough. He's not qualified. He's not talented enough. There's no way he pulled off this great heist of information and the French army fell because of this nebuch of a guy. He didn't buy it. It wasn't possible. However, the, the, the pressure, and this is one of the things when the, when the French historians address this issue, they address it from the way that the press and the public sentiment influenced the higher-ups in the French army, which was also a new concept as to how, that, how it worked. We're so used to that today, that the media has such a massive impact. But that's a major part of the French story as to the uproar of looking to avenge their defeat, to find the guilty party, despite the fact it was, there was such tenuous uh, evidence. Um, he decides um, that he's going to indeed... Uh, 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 decide that they needed to be a trial against. In other words, were, this was really just the decision of do we need or do we not have enough evidence to put Dreyfus on uh, trial. So he, right under this enormous pressure, backtracks from his original uh, approach and says, no, for sure we have our right guy. We know that it's him. And it just unleashes a wave of anti-Semitism when the chief of army basically says, we found him, we're going to bring him to trial. Now, that ended any possibility of a fair trial when he said that we need to try it, but he didn't just say we need to try it, but that, yes, we have, we got our mind, our, our man. Now, the, the wave of anti-Semitism that sweeps through France, um, this is again before the trial, this, this, broke it down as a question of the army against the outsiders. He represented the outside force that brought the army down. And this now became a battle of the army restoring itself, the state, the republic restoring itself, versus all of the outsiders, the anarchists, the traitors, and obviously the Jews. You have to put this again in, in context of the idea of the, this Third Republic. France is really only a hundred years uh, since its uh, emancipation from the Enlightenment, from its revolution, and there were still a lot of forces at play. Not everybody was in favor of the new world that they were in, and this brought all of this, um, all of this back. Now, the, the pamphlets and articles that went around, down with the traitors, death to the Jews, was a very frightening time for the Jewish community. Now, the day before uh, Mercier was to decide whether or not the trial was actually warranted, he, he re-examines the evidence and he just, like, you know, you read it, like, there's just nothing here. And what happened at that point was the leading anti-Semitic papers jumped all over his hesitating as to whether or not this was necessary. And they published their front page was, guess who's in the hands, the back pocket of the Jews? It's none other than our chief of staff. He's being controlled by the Jews and he won't let the trial happen. Needless to say, that's all that was necessary for him to change his mind and to order the trial and to declare that indeed uh, he had proofs of the treason of uh, Dreyfus. And this then goes to trial and it becomes the trial of the century. Foreign correspondents from 
all over the world come to France, including, as we'll talk about, uh, Theodor Herzl himself comes to, to cover this for the Vienna paper that he was working for at the time. Um, the evidence against him is extremely weak, and he maintains his innocence the entire time. The army was hoping to get a confession out of him and end the whole thing, but he is adamant in his, uh, in his innocence. And then what happens is Mercier Orf orders a closed trial. It has to be done in camera because, he said, the information that's going to come out is so sensitive to the French government and to the French army as to what our positions were and how this was breached and how did he find out, it would be a, a scandal for us to hold an open trial. So he closes the trial so that there's nobody there. Not only does it become a closed trial, but then as the trial goes on and it seems pretty clear that he would be found innocent, they simply did not have any information on him. Henry had prepared what became known as the secret file. And the secret file was a, uh, a literally an entire docket of forged documents. The entire thing was a group of forgeries, which were now again... I, I don't want to take this Tuckman's word as, as the gospel, so to speak. She claimed that he wasn't specifically out to get him knowing that he was innocent, but that he believed uh, Esther Hayes he was. He be- she believes Henry and his corroborators believed he was guilty, and, and the defense of the Republic was so strong, and the honor of the Republic and of the army that we needed to get him, and if we were missing information, but we know it's true, we'll fill it in. I, I can't say yes or no, what do I know? That's just the way that it's presented um, in, the, uh, in the history books. But in any case, this secret file was a total group, a set of forged documents, and it's submitted to the judges and is never made available to Dreyfus or his attorneys or the press. It's as they literally, in a closed trial, as it's nearing its completion, hand to the judges and say, we, we have the secret documents that will prove his guilt. And Dreyfus's own lawyers say, we never got any information about this. This is even in the late 1800s, that was the way you couldn't run a trial without them. And the judges, the, the court martial, this is a military court, say, you're not allowed to have them. These are secret information. And the incriminating evidence is never shown to Dreyfus, not to his lawyers, nor to the public. Based on this set of forged documents, which were communications between Dreyfus and uh, his German collaborators, the tribunal uh, convict Dreyfus of high treason. Um, in a humiliating ceremony, they strip him of his rank. Uh, in a very public ceremony, they, all of his epaulets are, are torn from his shoulders. He's led through the streets of Paris. This is like the Purim story, taking uh, Haman, leading Mordechai through the streets. They literally lead him through the streets, except they're shouting, not uh, what an honor, they're shouting, death to the Jews, take off his head, uh, you know, all, all the uh, classic anti-Semitic things throughout the entire city of Paris as Dreyfus is being led after his conviction. The death sentence in, in France had been abolished in the 1850s, so they couldn't put him to death, but they gave him a life sentence, and they sent him to Devil's Island in 1895, which was a notorious penal colony off of the coast of uh, South America in the Caribbean, which was basically just a two-mile-wide uh, two mile long, 500 yard wide rock, 
Uh, we have pictures actually of the stone hut that he lived in in total solitary confinement. There was nothing else on the island other than the few guards who were put there to, to be in charge of him. Nothing. There, and I don't need to tell you, there was no email, there was no texting. He didn't even have Wi-Fi, literally by himself in this deserted island uh, for several years. It was expected that he would die quickly and hopefully the whole story would die with him. But uh, God had other plans and he outlives everything. He survives yellow fever, malnutrition, uh, heat, humidity, animals. He survives it all. Many of the guards die. He survives everything. Meanwhile, back home, the next three years are in completely engulfed in intense efforts on both sides, both to uncover and to conceal the truth. They really had nothing on him, but they convicted him and they forged papers and the chief of staff of the, of the army was invested in allowing a closed trial and allowing the secret documents, the secret files not to be seen by anyone, which made it an illegal trial. Um, agreed upon by all the fact that it was both closed and that his own lawyers didn't get to see the incriminating evidence against him, the entire trial was illegal. The problem is it was an illegal trial run by the army itself. And this created a massive problem for the government in which it itself is now deep into its own cover-up, so to speak, of allowing this to happen and the conviction of this man uh, on account of that. And the French people, you had strong voices trying to uncover the truth and those trying to cover and hide the truth. And every move that the campaign for revision, what it became known as revision, was the, was the campaign to retry him in a fair way. Um, everything set off renewed efforts inside the general staff to shore up the case and cover past fabrications with new fabrications. So they got, you know, every good lie, as soon as a hole pops up, it's like the whack-a-mole. You know, a little lie over here, so we tie up and over here. So the case was built on nothing. So as the re investigative reporters began looking into it and questioning, so the it, this is the army itself now needs to cover this leak in the dam and then that leak in the dam and then in every lie brings up uh, an another one. Uh, again, quoting here from uh, Tuckman, there were secret meetings, warnings, blackmailings, clandestine relations between... Uh, uh, I'm not even going to try that. And Esther Hazy, disguises in false beards, dark glasses, various melodramatic enterprises so deeply entangling the army in acts it could never explain. The army just gets deeper and deeper into this that by now it cannot afford to face a reopening of the case. So it couldn't reopen it. If they would have reopened the case, it would have exposed the army and all of its lies and cover-ups in a way that the army would have been destroyed. So therefore, anyone agitating for revision or raising a question of Dreyfus's lawful conviction became ipso facto the army's enemy and by extension, the enemy of France. Now, this creates, again, the dynamic. This dynamic is in which um, if you were for justice, if you were, forget about because he was a Jew, you just felt this was an injustice. This closed trial, there were these files that nobody got to see. It's not right. Fighting for truth meant you were fighting against your country. 
It meant you were against our own army. It means you were against our own republic. And that's how the lines were drawn. And this is why this becomes such a major aspect in French history. Forget It happens to be a Jews in the middle of this. But this is an issue. You think about, again, just using our modern, like, very contemporary times, you know, uh, you're pro-Trump, you're anti-Trump, all that went on in the States. This was, you, you either were for the republic or you were against it. I'm just for truth. No, it was drawn up if you're for truth and you want to retrial, you're against the state. You're a traitor. And families are split apart. Communities are split apart. Everybody is either for Dreyfus or against Dreyfus. There's one uh, journalist by the name of Emil uh, Zola. Emil Zola uh, takes up the case. Now, historically speaking, again, just for the many aspects, there are so many, the historians love to talk about why did this become his passion. Not interesting to, it, for us. Our purposes is irrelevant. Complicated uh, dynamic, as all these things are. But he takes up uh, the case. Uh, he researches the injustice, and three years after the original trial of 1894, um, Dreyfus is first sent away to Devil's Island in the beginning of January of 1895. Three years later, he publishes his Je Accuse. Do I need to translate that for you? Uh, I, I accuse, making sure you all understood that. He, he this very famous uh, scalding article in which he lays the whole thing out. He uncovers the plot, he uncovers Esteres, he un uncovers Henry, the Mercier himself, uh, the French military, all part of the cover-up. And this creates, as you can imagine, another massive sensation. And they created the national dilemma, as I mentioned, because the army itself approved the submission of the secret file, which is illegal. And now if we were to retry him and find him innocent, who becomes guilty? Now, now the army is guilty, and we still don't know who the real traitor is. Quote from a, a French uh, writer from Joseph uh, Reinach, I guess I would say, I'm sure that's wrong. From this, from this first hour, the phenomenon occurred that will dominate the whole affair. It is no longer controlled by facts and circumstances that are carefully examined, which will constitute a belief. It's not that we're going to take the facts and figure that out so that we have a belief from the facts. It is the irresistible cavalier conviction which distorts the facts and beliefs. That's what this became. You, you had a belief in advance. He was guilty, he was innocent because you're for the Republic, you're for the army or not. And the voices of truth and justice are fighting against these things. And in the backdrop of all of this is the anti-Semitism of it was the Jew, the foreigner, of course it's him, and therefore there's really nothing else to speak about. In an amazing twist, Zola himself is now accused of libel because he publishes an article that the army is guilty of the cover-up. They take him to court. He's brought to trial. He's court-martialed by the army for libel against the army, and he's convicted. Seven to five vote again that he is guilty of libel for claiming that the army was involved in this cover-up. Some historians claim it's a miracle he found five judges who were willing to side with him given all of the uh, environment that was taking place. Some view him, of course, those who were in, in, in interest of the pursuit of truth and justice viewed him as a hero. He fled for his life. He flees to England, afraid that uh, he will be killed, and he was well-founded um, because of his uh, fear. 
Uh, the political cartoons of the time, I have a couple of, uh, in the back I'll show you. Um, uh, the, one of them it depicts a mask of Zola. And behind the mask is the grinning, satanic caricature of a Jew with his big nose. Um, there's another character, uh, cartoon which shows uh, Emil Zola coming up from a toilet, holding in his right arm a doll, which is Dreyfus, saying, you know, truth rising from uh, the source. I'm just gonna. If you go down to the end of the the notes, uh, if you, uh, enough, so if you just go all the way down, I have three pictures in the back. I just want to show you all the way down, all the way down. Um, there you go. These two on your screens in front of you, the top, are canes. These are walking canes from this period. This one on the right is is is. You could Google this. Is Dreyfus era cane. That's how it's uh, marketed. Um, and you can look at the one on the left, obviously. The handle of the cane is the long nose. Um, I don't need to tell you uh, who these are images of in, in France in the late 1800s. Uh, the picture, this is the um, that anti-Semitic uh, daily newspaper that I mentioned in the bottom, is again your very clear uh, a picture of your Jew with his uh, big nose and his uh, character uh, look and inside you can't really see but inside his mind are all broken down into all the different pictures of the different aspects of French life that he's in uh, he's in control of just this is what was uh, going on in the time and and even now Zola so he's in the pursuit of truth and justice you can go back to the place in the notes that we were if you remember we'll, we'll find it in a minute um, He's taken to court and found guilty. But he called out Esther Hazy. They take him to court, military court. And, yeah, right there, a little bit below, a little bit farther down. They take Esther Hazy to court, and he's found innocent. They bring the actual spy to court, who Zola's uh, investigative journalism found as the actual spy, and in deliberation that is reported to have lasted three minutes, the military court finds him innocent. So we have here a situation, this is now four to five years after the original conviction, we've had three military trials. Dreyfus is found guilty. Zola, the investigative reporter, is found guilty of uh, a libel. And the actual spy is actually found, tried, and found innocent. An unbelievable time period in in, in French, uh, the justice system. Uh, okay, a little bit lower, uh, down. Okay, now after Zola's attacks against the the, the verdict, um, uh, uh, excuse me, attacks against the verdict continue from many other sources. More and more evidence. This is taken over the entire country. So people are finding out more information, looking into things. Um, it becomes more and more obvious of who is actually guilty. Henry commits suicide, and uh, Esther Hazy flees to France. So all of this is taking place, except Dreyfus is still uh, wallowing away in Devil's Island. Finally, in 1899, four full years after his original conviction, he's finally brought back for a retrial. The, the situation had gotten such that they needed to try him again. They bring him back. Now, again, remember, he's oblivious to everything. He is not getting daily newspapers. He's not getting updates. He has no idea what's gone on in France since he left. 
And he is a terribly ineffective witness. His whole demeanor, he's been terribly weakened, he's sickly, and he is not able to convince anyone of his innocence. The secret file is not released. Even at this second trial, it is not released to him or his lawyers. Interesting historical note, the secret file is not released until 2013. France goes through a process, there's so much on this in terms of French, the French people themselves just dealing with this stain um, in their history. Uh, they released all the classified documents. They put them online. You can, look, you can find it online. Um, if you speak French, you can, I'm sure you'll be interested on it. Just Google the secret file of the Dreyfus trial and you'll find uh, that the French, uh, the French uh, Republic actually released those documents in 2013, a hundred years. After this came to a resolution, they finally released the secret files, which was the cause of uh, all of these problems. So in any case, in the second trial in 1899, uh, he's brought back and he's found guilty a second time. They refuse, again remember, to find him innocent would have been an incrimination of the army itself and their cover-up. They find him guilty and to deal with their pressures, this is what they came up with. A very, very, uh, a, a, nice, a, a nice thought, a good attempt. What they did is they said, you're guilty. We're going to sentence you instead of a life sentence, which we gave you four years ago. Now that we have new information, you're still guilty, but we're only going to service, uh, sentence you to five years of which you already served and therefore you can go free. So that they tried to combine the salvaging of the French army and uh, the honor and glory of the Republic by saying, you're guilty, you're a spy but we're not going to make you serve and we're going to say that the years that you already spent, those count for your new term and therefore you're, you are a uh, free man. This was such a sham of justice. They got a note from the Queen of England, uh, sent a telegram to the President of France asking, how could you possibly allow such a miscarriage of justice that this is what that your military court finds him guilty. This is after Esther Hazy has fled the country. Henry committed suicide. There have been numerous reports um, just, uh, exposing the cover-up and the innocence of Dreyfus, and you find him guilty again. But so it goes. So he's he's now guilty, but no longer on Devil's Island. There were others who would later rise to prominence who took up the case. Um, and it's not till seven years later, in 1906, 12 years after the original uh, guilty um, uh, verdict, um, that they eventually were able, under new governments, you know, things change over a decade of time, they were actually able to try him a third time and exonerate him entirely, both him and his lawyer, who obviously was also guilty of treason just for defending him. Um, they exonerate the entire party, and, for the, and again, he'd been free for the last seven years, but now, finally, in 1912, uh, and this continues on that throughout those seven years, this is a major aspect of uh, French society. They restore him to the rank that he would have had had he never been removed from the army. Uh, he becomes a colonel. Uh, they give him back all of his back pay that he should have earned had he remained his, as he was a lifetime uh, a soldier to begin with. They give him his medal. They reinstate him. And um, believe it or not, and that, this is one of the most fascinating aspects of the entire story, he goes back to the army. 
he goes back and he serves in the army after all that he'd been through. I, I know it's like, I don't say Nebuch, I don't know how to describe that. He goes back to the army and in World War I, he serves without distinction in his artillery position and he dies in 1922, oblivious to his dying day of the role that he would play, the historicals that he would be in the history books was beyond him. The whole thing. Um, but he, that's, uh, that's what happens. He's actually part of an assassination attempt in 1908. Somebody tries to assassinate him and lightly wounds him. He's shot in the arm. Um, that assassin was also tried and found innocent. The whole story is, is just unbelievable from start, uh, to finish. Um, he literally is one of the most unlikely heroes. Uh, he didn't see the forces that he unleashed. Um, certainly not Zionism, which we'd, we'll see in a moment now as we conclude, uh, 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 comes out of this. Uh, the French government commissioned a statue of Dreyfus to be made and to be displayed in the military academy where he had been trained and where he was then put to be stripped of all of his honors in upon his guilty conviction. Um, that was recently, in the last 10, 15 years or so. They commissioned a statue of him. And the president refused to allow it to be placed. It was instead placed in some other a public court. And uh, it's believed, just, it just, a hundred years later, they just, the, the, the conflict between the army and the, the honor of the army and what this exposed to put the statue there in the military. It just, it just couldn't be done. So it was placed somewhere else. Um, and the, 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 French, uh, the French people really had hoped in 1906 with his exoneration to be able to move uh, forward. But uh, there are two important uh, final thoughts on this, uh, on this story. Number one, it was a very unsuccessful wake-up call to the assimilated Western European Jew. Uh, that which we started with, that now that they had become assimilated, and they looked like the French and the Germans, and they acted like them, and they spoke like them, and they went to the universities, and they say, this was a sign of, you, you can't blend in. Now, again, as religious Jews, like, yes, that's, we've, we've had that tradition from going back uh, to the Torah itself that says, uh, we are a nation alone, we're a nation distinct. That is our greatest honor. We are Ivrim, Aver Hanar, from the other side. We have a mission. We are different. And no matter what you do to try to blend in, it will not work. We have that spiritual tradition forever. But to the assimilated Jew, who was not religiously inclined, there was this thought of, now I'll be like them. Now I'll finally be liked. And this was a wake-up call that that's indeed not the case. And this new anti-Semitism, which sprouts forth of a race, it's no longer religious because the Jew wasn't religious and he looked like everybody else, but it was simply an anti-Semitic approach to the race is eventually going to, of course, lead to the Holocaust. Um, and, and this sense that their soul had been cleansed with his exoneration never really uh, played itself out in any way, shape or form that way. And uh, it, it put everybody on notice, but uh, even till today, it's, you know, that's a lesson that uh, has never really been fully absorbed by the, the, the larger Jewish community. Um, and again, we live in a very different era here in the 21st century in, in North America, but um, th this is part of that, you know, we, we live amongst the nations of the world um, and, and the different streams of Judaism, some are more distinct than others. The Hasidim obviously are very happy to look, dress, speak, 
in a way that's very distinct from their non-Jewish neighbors. And then as you move uh, down the, the, the religious spectrum in terms of how every Jew identifies, some of us are more or less involved. But the idea that we will be liked by being like the non-Jewish neighbors amongst who we live, this was the, the first major worldwide event that made it crystal clear that that's not going to happen. And anyone who is uh, aware, you know, uh, no, right, listening or reading the comments on um, major uh, news uh, outlets, uh, anti-Semitism is alive and well in the free countries of the United States and Canada as well. Um, it's, it's still there, very much so, as much as uh, the Jewish community in, in some ways has assimilated into society, in some ways remained distinct, um, but that's still there. This was a, a major episode about that. But an, uh, the, the more significant for our purposes ramification of this was the birth of Zionism. Now, we have discussed the past week or two, that the Chovah Zion, the love of the Jew that he has to the land of Israel is as old as Avram Avinu. We, we love the land and that's not part of Zionism. That is part of being a Jew, is to love the land that Hashem has given us as our home and to yearn to be able to return there at the appropriate place. Zionism is a modern political movement of to return home and be able to self-govern Jews in the land of what was then Palestine and create a state. This is born out of, now again, the Chovah Veitzion already existed. We've already had the trickle of the Jews coming back. We have skipped historically the, the, the pogroms in Russia going back to Eastern Europe of 1881 and 1882. That precipitated the first Aliyah. 20 to 25,000 Jews leave Russia and move to the land of Israel. This is 20 years prior to where we are. That's already happening. Theodor Herzl is a journalist who was sent to cover this fantastic trial in 1894. And he is there. He is there in the streets of Paris when the conviction is given and, and Dreyfus is led through town and hears the blood-curdling screams of the Parisians, death to the Jew. And Herzl, who is as assimilated a Jew as could be, did not speak any Hebrew. He had no observance. He had no knowledge or practice of rituals. He, it's really an amazing that he should be the, the character. His wife was questionable whether or not she was even of Jewish descent. They for sure did not have a Jewish wedding. His own son did not have a bris mila. He was never circumcised. Certainly was never bar mitzvah. He is as a assimilated Jew as can be imagined. As early as the 1890s, just a few years before he sent to cover this trial, he was in his mind dealing with the Jewish problem of anti-Semitism, which was again alive and well in the late 1800s in Europe. And his solution that he wrote about in the early 1890s was mass conversion to Christianity. That's how we're going to solve the, the problem and I'll be first online. He then is there in Paris hearing these cries of death to the Jews and that awakens in him the very simple but unrealistic solution of we need to go home. Now his grandfather Simon Lowell, um, Simon Loeb Herzl or Shimon Leib uh, Herzl was one of the spiritual mentors of the Chovavei Zion. His grandfather would have never have heard the term Zionist. His grandfather was a member of the Chovavei Zion, those who loved Zion and wanted to return. 
this Rav, uh, Shimon, uh, Shimon Leib, had a son who is Theodor Herzl's father who left Judaism. By the time it gets down, down to theater, he's got nothing. He has zero connection to anything Jewish other than he identified as a Jew. But ritually, spiritually, he is disconnected. But he picked up from his grandfather this idea, we need to go home. This is what he writes. If France, this is the final quote on the bottom, if France, the bastion of emancipation, of progress, of universal socialism, if France can get caught up in a maelstrom of anti-Semitism and let the Parisian crowd chant, kill the Jews, then where can they be safe once again? We thought it was going to be France. We thought it was going to be this place of emancipation and progress and socialism. If there they chant death to the Jews, where are we going to be safe if not in our own country? Assimilation does not solve the problem because the Gentile world will not allow it, as the Dreyfus Affair has so clearly demonstrated. That's what he writes in his, book, in his booklet that he publishes right after the Dreyfus Affair. We need to go home. And therefore, this most unlikely of uh, uh, Jews who is going to lead the return home begins an official political movement to return home. And as he writes very famously in the first Zionist Congress, which he arranges in 1903, uh, I have this dream of our statehood. You're going to laugh at me now, but 50 years from now, you'll see it will come true, which is literally exactly what happens. Uh, in 1948, uh, almost literally just under 50 years from the day that he utters those words, it actually happens. So one of them, the reason why the Dreyfus Affair is so often quoted in terms of Jewish history, even though it's a, it's a French history story, what it did to the French Republic is far more important. The Jews in the center of it, it unleashes an anti-Semitism that one of its major ramifications is it impacts a Jew by the name of Theodor Herzl, who is inspired by this to say, we need to go home. Was he the first person to say we need to go home? No, that was happening throughout the late 1800s like we learned about. There were 25,000 Russians who had gone home in the early 1880s after the first pogroms. There's an, actually a movement called the Chova Veitzion to support the Jews, the Chalukah, they were collecting money. But Herzl is the one who says we're going to make it happen as our own state. The Jews of the Chova Veitzion were not dreaming of creating a state. They were just dreaming of coming home. Herzl says we're going to make our own state. And he gathers this first Zionist Congress and the ball becomes uh, it gets put into motion. When we learn more about Zionism, and we've discussed this in past years as well, and we learn about the, the passionate, antagonistic opposition to Zionism from the religious camp, those who were opposed to it, who felt it was wrong, it was evil, it was... So we're going to go, there are various sources in the Gemara and the Talmud, we should, we shouldn't. And we've spoken about this before, and we just we need to conclude with this. The religious world who yearned for redemption for 2,000 years, who prayed three times a day, many times, many of the blessings of the Shemona Esrei are about returning home. Every broken glass under a chuppah, every Pesach Seder, go, we need to go home, we're going to go home, take us home. To have a Jew like Theodor Herzl, who didn't even give a bris milah to his son, should be the Messiah to lead us home was impossible. It was just impossible to imagine that anything good could come out of that. God works in mysterious ways. A lot of good came out of that. We can look historically back and see that. In the time where it was a matter of should we join him or not, it was unimaginable for the religious community to say, 
yes, this is the man who's, who we've been praying for. This is the man to lead us back to the promised land. It's impossible. But, you know, as I said, God works in mysterious ways. The impossible happened, and who knows? That's the way that it needed to happen. We, we have the benefit of looking back 70-plus years from the birth of the state, well over 100 years from the first Zionist Congress. We have that advantage of looking backwards. But in the time, it's just important to sort of see the, there already was a movement back. It just wasn't a, it wasn't a political movement. They didn't have dreams of statehood. And he created that. And much of that came from covering the Dreyfus Affair. Uh, there's so much more to say in it. I invite you to, to read up on it. It's just a fascinating story and the ramifications. Um, and hopefully we just covered some of the issues that touch upon, from a Jewish history perspective, on, uh, on the impact, the lessons learned of, of going through it. And look forward to uh, meeting up again uh, next week. I wish you all... A uh, wonderful uh, evening. We'll see you again. Check out all of the various other...